most of you probably know the story. Here is a, a guy named Jonah, a prophet of God. Uh, in chapter 2 in Jonah, an Old Testament book, running back to God with a heart cry of repentance, begging for God's mercy and grace. Now, why was he in such desperate need of those two things? Well, because back in chapter 1, if you know the story, Jonah was running from God. You see, God had given Jonah a, a mission. And rather than obeying God, Jonah literally ran the opposite direction. You see, God had wanted him to, to go to Assyria, to, to the capital city of Nineveh, and to preach against that city. Nineveh would have been about 500 miles northeast from Jerusalem. And if you would travel by land, that would take about a month. But instead, Jonah got on a boat, booked a passage on that ship, heading across the Mediterranean Sea to the west in the exact opposite direction, headed to a, a, a Spanish coastal city called Tarshish. Now to get Jonah's attention, God sent a storm that could not be ignored, uh, similar probably to the coronavirus that you and I cannot ignore anymore. The ship was about to sink. The, the waves were tossing it about. Jonah told the other sailors that this storm was his fault, that God was trying to get his attention and was dealing with him, and that if they would just throw Jonah overboard, the storm would stop. And so they did, reluctantly. And a great fish that God had prepared came and swallowed Jonah whole and alive. So Jonah, now in the belly of a fish for three days, prays that prayer of repentance, begging God for mercy and grace. And I don't know if he began to, to pray the, the moment that his head went under, or if he waited a few days before he finally came to his senses. But we do know this, that after three days, in answer to his prayer, God causes the fish to come to dry ground and throw up, vomit Jonah back up onto dry ground. It's a fairly easy story to remember. There's only four chapters in the book of Jonah. Uh, in chapter 1, Jonah is running from God. Uh, in chapter 2, Jonah is running back to God. And in chapter 4, if you jump to the last chapter, Jonah is running ahead of God. But for 40 days, and we've been talking about quarantine, and that means 40 days. For 40 days, in Jonah chapter 3, the, the chapter that I want us to look at this morning, Jonah is actually getting his act together and running with God, finally. Not running from, not running to, running with God. Now, obviously, you have heard the governors uh, relaxing some of the stringent uh, restrictions, uh, and we're beginning phase one here in Oregon. Tomorrow night, uh, the elders at 5.30 and then the board at 6.30 are meeting uh, to pray and to discuss the best way for PBCC to reopen in stages as well. So I, I'd ask right now that you would just be in prayer for us, uh, that we uh, don't just make decisions uh, off the cuff uh, in our own wisdom, uh, just a knee-jerk reactions, uh, in an anxious uh, desire to end the quarantine, because there's still a number of things that are still up in the air. We're no, we know that we're on the right path, but we are desperately seeking God's wisdom and His direction. So if you would be praying for us for that, that would be a very good thing. Kind of like this morning, 
here's an old story that most of you probably know that contains a 40-day time period uh, that I believe actually does show us how God comes in with wisdom and with direction if you are seeking that. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I asked how you were doing, uh, how you were doing in your heart, um, how you were doing emotionally. Um, then last week, I've asked what you've been learning and making a list of all the things that God's been trying to, to teach you during this time of quarantine. This week, I'm going to ask a third question, and that is, how are you doing spiritually? Can you use a spiritual renewal, a revival in your life today? See, this week's 40-day event centers on one of history's most incredible spiritual revivals. And it's one that you would have never have guessed would have happened for a couple reasons. It's pretty extraordinary. Number one, because the people who were repenting, you would have never thought that they ever would. They were so far gone. They were so wicked that they would even admit that they were wrong seems pretty outlandish. But second of all, it's pretty amazing that God actually accepts their repentance. You see, if there was ever a city that was wicked, it was Nineveh, the capital Syria the capital city of Assyria. Oh, you think New York City is pretty corrupt. San Francisco is pretty sinful. Miami has its vices. <laughs> Nineveh would have taken the cake. Now, their society was very impressive. Uh, they had the concept of paved roads, flush toilets, believe it or not, way back then. Uh, they had one of the history's first postal system. Uh, they had a lending library. And they were the ones who put 360 degrees into the circle, for crying out loud. They were pretty genius. Uh, they were very well advanced. Now, if you looked at the city and the layout of the city, it was a very large city. This picture shows what an artist's concept would have looked like uh, based on the archaeological digs and finds that we have, we have done in, in the past. And it was a very important city. In Jonah chapter 3 and 4, it's called a great city. Historians say that it had an overall population at this point of at least 600,000 people. It, it would take Jonah three days to go from one side of the city to the next. It was about three miles across from wall to wall. And, and talking about walls, uh, the, the walls were about 50 feet high and they were deep enough that three chariots could ride along the top of the walls all side by side. Then you take into consideration another 60 miles radius of suburbia around the city. You realize that this was a huge city. But as often as the case, once a society becomes enamored with what they've been able to accomplish, it's easy to forget that there's a higher power. It's easy to forget that you're not the end-all, be-all, and, and, and that there is a higher power that, that demands, commands your allegiance. Nineveh had become complacent and as crazy wicked as a society could become. The, bi bi the biggest attraction in Nineveh was the center of worship to Ishtar, the fertility goddess. Uh, and so if you wanted to worship Ishtar, uh, who was in charge of fertility and bringing uh, agricultural abundance, you would uh, worship her with sacred prostitutes. You could, you could imagine that that would be something that would attract a lot of attention. So this was a city of immorality. It was a city of idolatry. It was a city of violence and of great atrocity. If you've been following along on our online Bible studies, 
This last week you would have caught our study on the book of Nahum, the minor prophet Nahum. And he was preaching against the Assyrians. And you would have found out that they were most renowned for their cruelty, especially in battle, as they sought to become the big boys on the block when it came to the Middle Eastern world. Uh, There would be, in their own descriptions, in their own um, carvings of their own history, you would see that there would be pyramids of human skulls, okay, showing how how much death was involved in their conquest. Corpses would line the streets of conquered cities. If you opposed them, uh, you would be skinned alive. If you were caught and not killed, well, then you wish you had been killed because they would cut off body parts like noses and ears and fingers and hands. They'd gouge your eyes out or they would just bury you alive with corpses. The army of Nineveh would make crowns out of severed heads. They would make wreaths out of chopped off limbs. They they would put these massive hooks through the noses and the lips of whoever they captured and yanked them around. They were a barbaric, a cruel, a despicable people. And when Nahum prophesied against Assyria, he he talked about how they had plotted against Jehovah God and his people. Nahum called it a city of blood, a, a city full of lies, a city of prostitution and of witchcraft. Everybody on the block would have known of Nineveh's cruelty. No wonder, no wonder Jonah didn't want to go there. Nothing that he would have known about this people would have suggested that they would have ever listened to his message, that they would have ever repented. So Jonah said, no. Jonah said, no, God, I'm not going to go. And in an act of grace, God comes back to Jonah a second time. Isn't that great? We can, we can say no to God a lot, but God's grace will say, I'm not done with you, though. And he comes to Jonah a second time. We pick up the story in Jonah chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can go there. Jonah chapter 3, in the first four verses, this is what we read. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city, and he proclaimed 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. That was it. That was the message. Uh, It's pretty clear. Definitely not a message that would win friends and influence people. 40 more days... And your city is going to be overturned. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Uh, that's not what Paul would call tickling of one's ear. <laughs> it's not like Jonah showed up and said, Hey, it's good to be here in Nineveh. Love your flush toilets and your paved roads. Uh, that's pretty neat. You're, you're, you're pretty advanced people. <laughs> no, it was a, a direct message of warning. Forty days. And you've had it. And what's surprising to me, what's surprising and even shocking is their response to that message because they're not, they're not offended. They don't capture Jonah and torture him. If you look at verse 5, you'll see what happens when they hear the message. Verse 5 says, the Ninevites believed God. Oh, they declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth 
Now, that's pretty profound for such a wicked people to hear a message like that and to turn things around. And, and even though it says from the greatest to the least, we know from the next verse that this was not a top-down repentance. This, this was not like the, the government uh, got religion and was forcing the people to do what they wanted them to do. This was actually a grassroots movement, um, which, by the way, in my opinion, is the only way that a country actually experiences true revival. It's when the people begin to change their hearts. The people begin to change their ways. See, you can pass all the laws you want. You, you can put as many people that you like in the government positions. And it's not bad to do that. It's not bad to try to change bad laws, evil laws that prey upon the weak and the defenseless. But it's also very true that you cannot legislate morality. Uh, unless the people's hearts change, you can pass all the laws you want. You're not going to guarantee them uh, to, to actually change their life. The revival starts with a people. They knew exactly what they were doing. Jonah doesn't have to say, hey, let me tell you all the sins that you've been committing. He, all he's got to say is, folks, you've been messing up. And they realize, yes, we have. Yes, we have. And they immediately declare a fast and they put on sackcloth. <laughs> and then verse 6 tells us that the grassroots movement makes its way to the top as the king catches wind of what's going on. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that what we can learn from this 40-day event here is that sometimes it's pretty, pretty obvious what is wrong. It's pretty obvious what is wrong and what needs to be done in order to make it right. It's pretty obvious sometimes what is sinful in our culture, what is sinful in our country. In fact, that's a pretty easy question to answer, right? It's easy to see what's evil out there in the world, right? But here's where the rubber meets the road. What about in our fellowship? What about what's going on in our church? Is there anything going on in the churches of today that does not bring glory to God? Are there things in your life, specifically, that if you were to be honest, you would admit were wrong as well? See, there's the rub. It's so easy to call out the sins of the world, but it's quite another thing to take stock of our own lives, our own actions, our own attitudes that do not reflect the love of God and the righteousness of a holy God. What's most beneficial to me, church, about this chapter is what we can learn about our lives, how to realign our lives to God's purpose. You see, we want revival, and we, we want revival in this country. We want revival in this world, and revival can happen, but it must begin within the church before there can ever be hope for it to happen in the world. What, what I see here in chapter 3 especially what the king does once he hears about this message that Jonah has brought, it actually gives us a roadmap, a roadmap to revival, both personal revival and national revival. I, I want to look at three things that the king did that we can begin to employ in our own lives as well. The first thing that he does is found in verse 6. It says, When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne took off his royal robes, 
covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. The first thing that the king does that's very significant is he rose from his throne. He got off his throne. Let me show you why that's so significant. Who sits on a throne? The, the, the person in charge, right? The, the person who gets their way, they get to sit on the throne. The one who calls the shots. The most important person in a kingdom gets to sit on the throne. But let me ask you this. What happens when the guy on the throne starts to make bad decisions? Some pretty horrible, wicked decisions. It, it's not often that you hear somebody in charge admit that they are wrong, especially in our political climate. Folks, Nineveh, and Assyria, for that matter, was wicked, in large part because their leaders were wicked. As the kings went, so goes the nation. Yes, the people were still on the hook as well. They weren't off the hook. They, they still had to admit that they were doing the wrong things as well. There was responsibility that they had. But it is significant to me to see that here's a king who was willing to admit that he was wrong, that he was wicked, that how he was leading the people was wrong, and how he was living was wrong. And so, he got up from his throne. He got up from the throne realizing there needed to be a change. So let me ask you, who has been sitting on the throne of your life lately? Oh, you know who's supposed to be sitting on the throne of your life, but how often do you push him off and take back the reins? See, when that happens... The example of this king, the king of Assyria, it shows us that more often than not, when we're sitting on the throne, things get out of control. And, and, and things happen that, that erode our relationship with God. Church, before revival in this world or in this country can come, you and I as disciples, we must learn how to get off the throne of our lives and to stay off the throne of our lives, which means that we've got to repent. We are called to repent, which means we're no longer the boss, the Lord. We're no longer the one in charge. That's what it truly means to be a disciple. It means that you are now a learner, a follower, not the lead dog. So, do you need to get off the throne? Are you willing to say you've messed things up, that God deserves to be the one on the throne, the one in charge? Is it time, finally, to admit that your way is the wrong way and that maybe God's way is the best way? Got to get off that throne, number one. The second thing that the king does here in verse 6 is he takes off his royal robes and he covers himself with sackcloth. Folks, to me, that's a great picture of when pride gets peeled off and humility is now embraced. I believe that this is what this rep represents. You do a study throughout Scripture about garments, and there's a lot of things that garments can, can tell about people. Uh, first, garments can represent favor, like uh, back in the Old Testament when Joseph uh, received from his dad a coat of many colors. It showed that he was the favored son. Garments can also represent positions in life. Uh, for example, uh, purple fabric would have been very expensive to, to make because the dye, purple, was a very expensive dye to get. And so usually that was reserved for people in positions of royalty or nobility, people of, of wealth. Garments can also signify righteousness, a covering up of sin and shame. For example, back in the Garden of Eden, 
when Adam and Eve had sinned, they realized at that point that they were naked. And the Bible says that they were ashamed. And so they, to try to do something about that, sewed fig leaves together and put those on to try to cover up their nakedness. But then we were told that that wasn't good enough because God saw through it. As God came down, he sensed that they were trying to cover up their shame, but it wasn't working. And so as they left the garden, which was one of the consequences to their sin, they were clothed not in fig leaves anymore, but in animal skins, which tells me that, uh, folks, if you have animal skins, that meant an animal had to die, right? Which meant this was the very first sacrifice, an animal sacrifice offered for the sins of people. And it was God himself who had covered their shame. It was God who gave them his own righteousness by making that first sacrifice in history. And ever since, ever since man has tried to cover up his sinfulness and his shame through his own self-righteousness, his own efforts, religion, I guarantee you, is a man-made thing. It's an effort to try to make oneself right with God. The problem? Well, all through Scripture, it tells us that we can't be good enough, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It tells us that none of us are righteous in in and of our own selves. No, not one. Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, told the religious people of his day that all of their efforts to look good and to be right with God were like putting on filthy rags in the eyes of a holy God. In the book of Revelation, Jesus tells those who have put their faith in him that they should be clothed with the righteous, white, pure, spotless robes that he would put on them, that he would supply for them. Those garments represented his righteousness that would cover their sin. Folks, I know, I get it. For Christians, it's hard for us to be vulnerable, to admit that we actually have struggles, that we're sinful. We, we think maybe the most powerful testimony that we could have is by looking perfect, looking sinless, looking good. But folks, you, you read Paul you read of his example in the New Testament, you'll see that he never relied on his own righteousness. In fact, he put everything that would have been counted as righteousness up there, and he says, you know what? I count all of this stuff as worse than rubbish. Now, maybe in your Bibles it does say rubbish, but I'll tell you, the Greek word was a vulgar term for fecal matter, which meant that Paul was saying, anything that I could show you that would make me right with God in and of my own self, should be flushed down the toilet. That's exactly what he was saying. So during this quarantine, as you take stock of your life, are you relying on just looking good, or are you willing to approach your God with humility, realizing that you are relying on him not just for your physical blessings, but to sustain you in your spiritual life as well? Are you willing to be vulnerable and say, you know, I'm not as close to him as I want to be. I'm not as close to him as I have been. See, revival is a great thing, but it must always be centered on the realization of how amazing God's grace really is, that you can do nothing on your own, that you have to rely on his righteousness, and that we could all follow Jesus closely, more closely than what we're doing at present. 
Finally, the third thing that the king does is actually to encourage some very practical steps for himself and his people to, to take to prove that they're, they're, they're serious about revival. Well, let, let's look at verses 7 through 9. It says, Then the, the king answered this proclamation, Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. Folks, that's a fast that he is declaring. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So there's three things that I want to show you here that the king was encouraging people to do. First of all, fasting and sackcloth. Fasting and sackcloth. I started thinking about that this week. Fasting and sackcloth. Both of those things are very uncomfortable. You know what fasting is, going without food for a a specified time. And and you know what sackcloth is. It's it's basically like saying, hey, I'm going to wear burlap. (laughs) Not the the most comfortable of all fabrics. Folks, when when you're faced with understanding that you aren't as close to God as what you want to be, that you have missed the mark, and that you must repent, and you must humble yourself, that's not comfortable. It's not comfortable. It it means being vulnerable and letting God see inside of you and admitting where you are not following Him close enough. If you read through Scripture, the, the, the path to peace and joy often means that we are humiliated in order to overcome an addiction. There's this humiliation of having to confess before others that you've got a problem. And though God is good, In my experience, he'll allow that struggle at times in order for us to understand our place in our relationship with him. To to know that it's not as good as what we thought it was. And then to find the beauty that he has in store for us. Secondly, the king wants people to urgently call on God. Now, this is not just a, a simple prayer. Have you ever found yourself at a time of your life so desperate that you realize that you're not even knowing what you're saying. You're just crying out in your heart to God. It's, not, it's no longer words. It's like your heart is crying out. You're so desperate for Him to come and do something in your life. That's exactly where the King is. It's a cry of His heart. It reminds me of the parable that Jesus told about two guys who went to the synagogue one Sabbath, one tax collector who was a despicable, person in in the eyes of Jews, one who had turned his back on God, one who turned his back on his people. And the other one was a religious leader, a a Pharisee, one that the religious people would look up to. These two men went into the synagogue to pray, and the religious leader stood up and he prayed about himself and his righteousness and his goodness. The tax collector, meantime, sat at the back, couldn't even look up to heaven, beat on his breast and cried out, Have mercy on me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus told the audience that the tax collector, this sinful man, rather than the religious leader, went home justified before the Lord. See, this is one of those hard concepts for good Christians to get, especially for those of us who've grown up in the church. Gabe, you know what I'm talking about. As much as God cares about our behavior, and He does, It's the state of our heart, really, that he wants us to change. 
Because as our heart goes, so our actions will go as well. Fasting in sackcloth, calling urgently on God. Finally, the king says, and just stop it. Stop it. You know what you're doing wrong? Stop it. There's a, there's a skit from one of the, the TV shows from a long time ago where Bob Newhart, was, uh, the comedian, was, was a guest star. And he played a counselor in this skit. And, and, and uh, a gal came to see him and, and he explained how, how his method works. He says, I, I charge $5 um, and for each session and it's only going to take one session. Um, you're going to tell me your, your issue and then I'm going I'm to tell you something and, and then I'm going to have you go home and think about that. So this lady begins to tell her problem to the counselor, Bob Newhart, about how she is a, afraid of being buried alive that she's got these, these horrible dreams and nightmares about being buried alive, and now it, it kind of consumes her life, and she's just afraid to do anything because she's afraid of being buried alive. And at this point, Bob Newhart says, okay, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you two words, and I, I want you to go home, and I want you to think about this, and, and then we're done. And so she, she gets out her pen, getting ready to write this down, and he goes, okay. No, he says, you don't have to write it down. It's just two words. He goes, Stop it! Stop it! That, that's not good. That's not healthy. Thinking that you're, you're going to be buried in a box, just you, you need to stop it. And she keeps arguing, well, you've you got to tell me these steps. He goes, no, no, just stop it. Just think of Dude, when I first saw that, I related so much to my ministry with young people who would come into my office and tell me about all these pits that they were in and all these things that they were involved in. And I just wanted to tell them, stop it! Just whatever you were doing that took you far away from God, stop. Turn around and stop doing that. That's kind of what the king is telling the people. Stop it. Rubber meet road. (laughs) Whatever has taken you far away from God, realize that this is a sin and it's causing damage to your relationship with God and your relationship with other people, maybe even your health. This, by the way, is where authentic Christian fellowship comes into play in my book. You see, 1 John chapter 1, it's a wonderful chapter in the Bible. It tells us, amongst other things, that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Folks, that's made possible by the cross, by Jesus' death. That's why we're forgiven. But then he doesn't stop there. You see, Jesus wants us forgiven, but he also wants to purify us. He says if we confess our sins, he is also faithful to purify us. Different word than forgive. Purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, I I love being forgiven. I know you do as well. But man, I still get caught up in stuff that I shouldn't be doing, and I want to stop it. So how do I do that? God says, confess your sins to one another. Live in authenticity with other believers. Be vulnerable. Let them know of your struggle so that they can speak into your life, so that they can love on you, so that they can give you accountability. And that will help you step away from the sins that you have been forgiven of, but which are still tripping you up. Folks, here's a, here's a great roadmap to revival in Jonah chapter 3. Humility. Calling urgently to God and changing our ways. When that happens, look, look what God does in verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction 
he had threatened. Huh. What an what a interesting concept to find in the Old Testament. I, I thought it was just after the cross that we lived with grace, but not so. God had this idea back in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 33, God actually says this, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Yes, that is the consequence many times, that the wicked have to be slain, but I take no pleasure in that. He says, I would rather that the wicked turn away from sin and find life. See, that's God's heart and his attitude before the cross. But now that the cross is here, guess what? How much more do we have that attitude towards us that God says, I want you to come back into a relationship with me. It's interesting that Matthew chapter 12, there's a a story in Jesus' life where the scribes and the Pharisees come to him and they they say, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, Listen, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of a prophet Jonah, oh, a little tie into our story today. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, Jesus says, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and will condemn this generation. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here, speaking of himself. You see, through Jesus, God does offer forgiveness. Praise God. But through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit, God actually offers something more. He wants to make us better. He wants to to chip away all of the sin in our life. He wants to purify you. So as you're sitting there in quarantine today, what do you think God is longing to see in your life during this time? What does He want to see changed in your life? What does he want to see changed in the life of our nation, in in the life of our leaders? What does he want to see changed in the life of our churches? Folks, it is so easy to focus in on the evil, wicked world. Make them repent. Make them turn from their evil ways. Perhaps you're familiar with 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. It's it's quoted quoted a lot by many disciples today, but I have a surprise for you as we look at that verse. Listen to what God says. 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. By the way, do you see those three things are exactly what the king did in Jonah chapter 3. Humble, seek God's face, turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, God promises, and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. So many of you have been talking to me about wanting God to heal America. But what he's saying here is this means us, his people. We, the church, are his people, right? Right? And if we want our land to be healed, what does God want us, his people, to do? He wants us, the church, to humble ourselves. He wants the church to seek his face. He wants the church to turn from our wicked ways. Not our government, not our nation, us. Do you ever realize that this means us before it means the U.S.? (laughs) Could it be possible that God is saying that he wants his own disciples 
to turn back to him with repentant hearts and then serve as a model to eventually see revival come to our communities and our country and our world. Right now, I invite the worship team to come on up. Some of you um, have heard of the great awakenings in the history of our world. It's been said that the second great awakening uh, back in the 17 and 1800s had been the greatest social impact of any event in the history of America. It's interesting. Following the, the Revolutionary War, the United States experienced a moral slump and the churches in America actually became totally irrelevant uh, as the nation just had this downward spiral into immorality. It, here's the statistics. By 1790, it was estimated that 6% of the 5 million Americans were confirmed drunkards. Crime had grown to such an extent that bank robberies were actually a daily occurrence. Women didn't go out after sundown for fear of assault and rape. The Chief Justice of the United States had written to James Madison that the church was too far gone ever to be redeemed. What a sad commentary. Voltaire said Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years' time. Why? Because we had forgotten who we were as Christians. We, we had forgotten to humble ourselves to seek God's face and to turn from our wicked ways. Similarly to what was happening in the United States, England had also experienced this downward spiral, this spiritual drought. And so in 1791, over in England, a number of churches there called for a concert of prayer for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and British churches began to seriously take that call to prayer. And the results in that country were immediate, not just in Britain itself, but also in Scotland and Wales and Ireland and even up into the Scandinavian countries. So in the United States, church leaders stood up and took notice they saw the results that were going on in England, and so they issued a similar call to prayer in 1794. The concert of prayer in America started in January of 1795, and in three years, revival had broken, up, broken out in so many locations it began to change the landscape of our country. Revival happened, but it began with individuals. It began with people. It began with churches, not governments, not kings. It happened when the people of God took this seriously and humbled themselves, calling urgently on their God and turning from their wicked ways. Folks, I know that you want America to be able to be healed, that you want America to be able to turn back to God, to our, the roots in which we were founded. But folks, we see in the Bible that that's only going to happen when we, as God's people, begin to experience revival in our own lives, in our own fellowships. So I'm calling on us to have concerts of prayer now, to begin to seek God, to show us where we need to change so that we can be a shining model to a dark world that needs to see that light, Jesus' light shining through us.